It's good to see you. Those tuning in online, it's good to see you there too. I know uh, we, we are in the middle of summer, and I feel like this was the first week that I feel like summer showed up. Anybody else have a time this week? Uh, I'm not originally from Missouri, so it still shocks me every year. When you walked out of your house and you felt like you were immediate, immediately in like someone else's mouth. Like that's still the best way for me to describe it. Like I was like, I didn't know that that's how this worked, but it just feels hot and sticky and gross. And there's bugs out there and they just stick to you then. And it just, I just, it ruins me. Every time, I, it's just the Missouri summer in me that I just go, what is this place? I feel like the gateway to the West that was St. Louis, they, that's the gateway. You just keep going. You don't stop here. You just keep going. But here we are in Mount Vernon, 105 degree heat index. I'm actually baling some hay this afternoon. Square bales. Pray for me. All right, pray for me. It's going to be crazy. I will tell you, today's passage in John chapter 11 is probably one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Um, it has been a linchpin for me personally in a lot of deep questions. It has been a linchpin for me ministerially, pastorally, there you go, uh, with tragedy that I have been through and seen. It has been a linchpin to me theologically, um, to deep questions about who Jesus is and what he's all about. And I can tell you that the writer, John, of this gospel, he put John chapter 11 intentionally here. It is the midway point of our study of the gospel of John. And I will tell you, just to point this out, this is the climactic movement of the entire book of John, is chapter 11. This is where everything reaches the first kind of preparing, like kind of a prophetic, foreshadowing, climactic moment. It's where you see something go down and you go, oh, that changes everything. That, that, that changes everything. And, and I'll tell you, it's here intentionally. Uh, everything from before and everything after flows and from, uh, to and then from this passage. So everything we've studied through the first 10 chapters, and then everything that's going to follow all the way through chapter 21, it is linchpinned on this. So it makes sense to me that I've had some experiences and some intentional times that I feel like God has used this both to preach to me and to teach me, but also for it to minister to a lot of you. Um, I will warn you, this is an incredibly intense passage because of its subject matter and because of the current climate of our world, um, this passage is incredibly needed, um, but it, it is not necessarily always the one that we want to talk about. We are not a culture that likes to think about death very much. Uh, we're not a culture. Uh, on the regular. In fact, I'd say we're a culture, naturally, that likes to ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, delay it, um, in real ways, act like it's never going to happen. Um, but for most of us, the longer we live, the more we realize that death is a friend to all and leaves none behind, whether we like it or not. John chapter 11 
is ultimately a question of pain and death. I want to read you the first few verses of John chapter 11 just to give you the context of what we're going to be talking about this morning and kind of introduce this, and it doesn't need much introduction because it's pretty well story-driven. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, his sister Martha. This was Mary, whose, who, whose brother was Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So, why would he put this in here? Two reasons. There's lots of women named Mary, mother of Jesus, this Mary, all right, lots of Marys, and this is so that someone could go find her. They would know which Mary he's talking about, because this story was not only recorded in the Gospels, but it's also something that the local people would know of that story. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one who you love is sick. That is one of the most compelling statements I think you could say to Jesus, right? Hey, Jesus, heard you're about love. Just want you to know the one you love, you're all about it, is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That would have been the most perplexing statement on the face of the planet if Jesus had not already healed a blind man, if Jesus had not already healed sick people, and they'd seen him do it to crowds, they're going, ah, sweet, yeah, we got the secret sauce. I know what he's talking about. I got this. He's going to heal him. He's not going to die then we get the rest of these verses. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary, so when, uh, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judah. Now, pause. I just think it's curious that the disciples hear from him, hey, this isn't going to end in death. Don't worry. This is for God's glory. And then he just sits still for two days. He says, let us go back. But rabbi, this means teacher, he said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and you are going back to the same place. Isn't it curious that the places that Jesus is called is the places that would cause his death? Jesus answered, are you not the twelve? Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble. For they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. He's going, I am doing the work of my Father. When I stay in the light, I think I'm going to be okay. I'm listening to my Father. And then we get these passages. This is really going to set the table for what we're talking about. After he said this, he said, I went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. <laughs> Jesus had the speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So here's the context. You ready? Lazarus is sick. He loves Lazarus. He loves his sisters. He waits, and he says there's something larger that's going to happen in the context of this story. His disciples assume he's going to save him before he dies. Jesus clearly waits for him to die. Not to fall asleep, but to die. 
Now he uses this language, fall asleep, because that's the context of eternal life that you and I still live under in salvation. Don't get distracted by those terms. He would say, waking up in heaven is like falling asleep here and waking up in eternity. The context of that. But here's where this gets difficult. How many of us, it's not two days or three days, it's years of suffering, years of unanswered pain, and even the separation of loved ones. The real difficulty of this passage is that pain and death comes with lots of questions. Pain and death comes with a lot of questions. This passage is clearly not trying to introduce this concept of Lazarus getting sick and dying without being a little bit mysterious, a little bit intriguing in the sense of like, why would he do it this way? Why would he wait? Why would he let his friend die? Why would he let his sisters suffer? Why would he do all that? And I mean, if you've been around death, if you've sat with someone who has prayed for something and God has seemed to be showing up late, there's a lot of questions there. My personal side of this, this is exactly where I sat. I want to give you two thoughts <clears throat> that flow from Ravi Zacharias and John Lennox. John Lennox is a friend of the late Ravi Zacharias, who's from Cambridge, who's a philosopher and teacher of Christian theology and apologetics. He has two statements that I've kind of taken and made my own, but I want you to have them at the center of your thoughts. Uh, the first is this, pain without purpose is painful. Super informative, right? Yeah, you ever stubbed your toe and thought, man, that was so helpful? Right? I stepped on a Lego that was the helicopter blades to some sort of craft the other night, but it was sticking straight up. I stepped on it so hard and rotated, it ripped the bottom of my sock off. And I'm pretty sure it stole half my soul at the same moment. It's just like, I was just like, oh, wow, that was so purposeful. I'm glad I hadn't. But this statement, I think, is really helpful for you to recognize that pain, when you don't know the purpose behind it, just, it, just, it just rips at your soul. Something that you go through that is painful and you don't know the purpose behind it, it just tears at you. But I want to also put this with it, and this is what's helpful. Pain with purpose can be hopeful. Uh, this isn't just... A spelling area. This is actually intentional, okay? Some of you are looking at it and go, oh, great spelling. Good job. No, no, no. It's intentional, all right? Full of hope. Hopeful. When, when we see the reasons behind it, um, you, you, you recognize this in most of us when we did athletics. Uh, your coach, you'd show up to the start of the season and they would do two-a-days, or they would have you run sprints, or they would have you get in shape. 
right? And they would put the bucket out by the side of the court, or they would tell you, you know, you're going to wish you were in hell by the time this is done. And you would just go, yeah, sign me up. And the reason was behind it is that you knew it had a purpose. I remember in freshman year of baseball season, I had a coach named uh, Lubasich, and he was a World War II vet that had one eye and three fingers left. All right, and he was our baseball coach. I am 99% sure the man knew nothing about baseball. But he was our freshman baseball coach. He had us read a book called Endurance, and I knew we were in trouble. It was the story of Ernest Shackleton and his survival of trying to find the South Pole. This man had us run a mile at the beginning of practice in our cleats in Oregon, and then at, a, at the end of practice, we had to run another mile. And if we didn't beat the time that we ran the first time at the beginning of practice, we had to run a third mile. We're talking about baseball here. I wasn't great at math, but I did the math. And I was like, it is 440 feet all the way around the bases from the left-hand batter's box. The last time I checked, it is 537 feet or 5,372 feet for a mile. Am I hitting 10 home runs a game? Is that what you're telling me right now? I play shortstop. It was, like, I remember I did the math. It was like 222 steps to shortstop. I was like, are you telling me I'm playing center field 80 times? Like, I understand what we're doing. I actually quit freshman, the field, quit. My dad made me go with him to a restaurant and write an official letter quitting to this man because this guy had that much authority that my dad, I think, was even scared to have me quit in front of me. He might just kill me. So I wrote this official letter, right? And I handed it to him. I quit. And you know what he did that day? He stopped the running policy and he gave the whole team pizza the day that I quit. <laughs> I, I'll never forget this story. It broke me. I, was, I have never wanted to fight an adult before in my life. And I'm going to fight a World War II vet with three fingers and one eye. And he looked at me and he told me the purpose behind his plan. He said, baseball is a mental game. You have small moments over the course of an entire game where you have to be checked in and ready to run and to run well distance-wise takes a strong mental aptitude. I was less worried about your bodies as a freshman to run it as I was as your ability to cognitively stay present in the game. I was trying to train your mind, just like Ernest Shackleton had to to survive. I said, that's dumb. No. <laughs> I remember his answer didn't sink in as well as it does now. I remember hearing that and be going, that's a bunch of baloney. You could have told me that and I would have learned. I know a lot of times that's how God works with me. When I know the pain has a purpose, there's hope and fullness in it. Let's continue our story. Jesus arrives late to the party. On arriving... In verse 17, on arriving, Jesus found, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 
Now, Bethany was less than two miles to Jerusalem, so that just means that a lot of people were showing up to mourn Lazarus' death. Many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. They got there before Jesus. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Martha, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that you've now, I know now that even now God will give you whatever you ask. What faith that is, right? But I know he'll rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Go back real quick. I want to finish that thought. It's kind of who has come into the world, which is in, it's incredible. She's saying that. Jesus said to her, he replies, <laughs> one more, sorry, yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Son of God. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here. Now pause. That first interaction that we have with Martha is an incredibly helpful one. There are two types of people in this room, and I want to divide you up, but I don't want to divide you. I want to just tell you that most of the time, these questions of pain and suffering divide themselves up into two camps. Martha is the camp of the intellectual answer. She needs an answer that formulates and sticks and makes sense in her brain. She needs it to make sense logically. She needs to see how this flows. And so her coming to Jesus is with the question, I have read, I know you, I have studied, I have pictured you in my brain, the Messiah, and I have seen what you have done. Intellectually, I know this, that you can do. And Jesus' answer is brilliant. He gives her the intellectual answer. He says, Jesus wins in the end. That's, that's the answer. The intellectual answer that Jesus gives. He's like, hey, in the end, I win. In the end, I get to call the shots. In the end, you believe it, right? I'm the resurrection and the life. In the end, I get to say the final word. In the end, I declare victory. And Martha's like, I know. I know, but that just feels like so far away. So she goes and gets her sister, and her sister is the other camp. When she got married, now Jesus had not yet entered the village, so Martha met, her, met him at the front. Sounds like they did one of those like, conversations where you can't get in the door. You know, you're just kind of like, uh-huh, yes, okay, yes. He, she runs and gets... Mary, and now Mary is like catching him before he's even in the village. I mean, this is just, I mean, they are just like beside themselves waiting and hoping, right? 
But yet still at the place where Martha had met him, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was running to the tomb to mourn. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, if you had been here, notice the same question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus responds, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews that had come along with her also weeping, this is, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus cried. He wept. I told you I'd divide you into two camps. The one is the intellectual answer, and for some people that is the stimulating thing. That is the thing they want to know. In the end, they cling to that hope, right? They, they just cling to that hope, and that sustains them, and that helps them, and that is amazing. But there's another camp. And Jesus answers it well. He just says this. He answers it by saying, Jesus cares in the now. Jesus cares right now in the pain. I've, I've said this multiple times from the stage in multiple different settings, but I will tell you this again because I need you to hear it. Jesus has the best surprise up his sleeve of all time. He is staring at a woman that is devastated on the ground, in the dirt, a, a, a shamble of a person broken to her core. I would be so giddy I would be picking her up. I would be smiling. I'd be looking at her and going, you don't know what's about to happen. This is going to be awesome. In fact, he starts to walk towards the tomb. I'd be dragging her. I'd be telling the crowds, come with me. It's going to be amazing. But in that moment, he doesn't run to that victory. He doesn't run past the pain. He weeps. And if there is a quality of our God that I love the most, it is this. He does not minimalize, marginalize, press, make us feel minute or stupid in our pain. He cries with us. He sits with us in it, even though he knows that it's momentary, even though he knows that it will change, even though he knows he will win and make all things new, even though he knows he will tear grapes to gardens. In that moment, he cares deeply, deeply about pain. And I'll tell you, when I've had dark nights of the soul, when tragedy has struck this church and heartache abounds, I am so glad that my job is not to just point to some far-off hope of restoration, but to be able to sit with confidence that God is right here and that he cares. And I'll tell you, the intellectual answer, absolutely. God's past faithfulness with Joseph is so present in our current situations and moments that feel like dungeons and slavery will be turned to authority, blessing, 
and restoration. I believe that, but I will tell you, I needed to know in my heart that God cared now. And Jesus says yes. And that's so good. I'm so glad. But let's be honest. I need the rest of the story. (laughs) I need the rest of the story, right? Then Jesus said, or then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind, may have kept this man from dying in? I mean, he's done great things. I mean, shouldn't he have just got here a little earlier? It's good that he cares, but like, he was late. Like, he, he could have saved the guy, right? But Jesus, oh, I love this. Once more deeply moved, he's out in front of the tomb. And, you know, I think at this point, it's a gospel thing for him. I don't think it's about his friend anymore. I think he's looking at the crowds, and he's knowing the pain of the world, seeing the lostness of the world, knowing the cost of the gospel is coming, knowing it will cost him everything, and that he himself will be in a tomb, and that it will cost him his life. Came to the tomb with a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And he said, take the stone away. Now, I don't know if you've been around something that's been dead for three days and sat in the sun, but everybody's concerned about the smell, rightly so. Verse 40, but Lord said Martha, the sister, the one that got the intellectual answer, is the one that's like, hey, 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 hey. I know we're all emotional. Things are getting a little crazy here. Just want to remind you. This is a dead man. By this time, there'll be a bad odor. He's been dead for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Jackson was like, wait, wait, I thought we were talking about later. (laughs) They took away the stone, and Jesus looked up to the Father. Notice how he prays here, you guys. So similar to the Garden of Gethsemane, a little bit later when he's praying about his own path. Thank you that you have heard me. I know that you are always here. You always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. They're already close, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice. And I love this because he calls us by name, friends. Lazarus, come out. And the little John said, and the dead man. Well, he's not dead anymore, but I like how you still call him that. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face if there was any doubt in that moment. And in the end, and this is why I'm wearing this shirt today, even though it's an Easter message from six years ago that I still cling to, Jesus provides victory. Victory over pain and death. And I know for some of us, we didn't get the Lazarus story. But I promise you, the story's not finished. And victory has already been declared.
What this stories teach me is two thoughts that I want to connect to those thoughts of pain earlier. Pain will not be wasted in the end nor marginalized in the now. Pain will not be wasted in the end nor marginalized in the now. Jesus took every painful ounce of the story of Lazarus and he rang it out for us. He'll use it for his glory. He's thinking about you and I in this room. He knows that this story will echo through the centuries, through millennial, that we will hear his heart and see his love and we will know these truths and it will not be wasted. It will be magnified. And the truth is, he knows the end his story will reflect the same thing, which is why John chose to put chapter 11 at the center. Two thoughts for you. Pain in your life is, I want you to think about this, your current situation, pandemic, battles, depressions, loneliness, heartache, worry, anger. Pain in your life is, the number one, the key to unlocking deep compassion. Pain in your life is the key to unlocking deep compassion. You ever broken your arm and then talk to somebody else that's broken their arm? BuzzFeed Video did this awesome video a, a few days ago. I don't watch everything on BuzzFeed, but they did this awesome video where they had moms that had lost a child talk to children that had lost moms and they Zoom called it and recorded it. You want to talk about a cry fest. You had children talking to a woman, or talking to a mom that had never had one. And you had moms who hadn't had the adult conversations with a child that they'd never seen be an adult. And the exchange was powerful, and it was wisdom-giving and life-giving to both parties, but I found it most incredibly intriguing and incredibly overwhelming emotionally was the immediate connection through the pain they had. Immediate. I mean, didn't even need to know the names, and they heard the stories, and they're just, they're just instantly in tears, instantly speaking, I love you. You know, your mom would have cared about you. You know, if she was sitting here right now, she'd be proud of you. You know, my mom was a lot like you, and she was proud of you, and you know what? I bet you did the best with the time you had, and she probably, she would be like me. She would be proud of you as a mom. And I mean, they just immediate, deep, empathetic compassion through their connection of pain. I'll tell you, when pain doesn't have a purpose, it will steal your joy, break you down, and make you hopeless. But when you see it as a key or a doorway to deep compassion, and you let God use it, Can be life-changing for those around you and those that need it most. Pain in your life, the last thing I want to tell you, is the start of a journey to real hope. 
And what I mean by that is this. I believe pain and death is where we all find ourselves truly desiring and having to figure out if we believe the gospel is true. I don't think the rubber meets the road, and I don't think that faith in Christ is real unless you've experienced some pain and death and you recognize what's really at stake, what's really being played, what's really going on. That if this future victory is real, if this future hope is real, that this is really a God that can take all this mess that I can make and others can make and bring something good out of it, that is a journey that we're all on. And I tell you, pain is the catalyst. It is the first step. It is most likely the hardest steps. And I will tell you, it's not just a one and done deal. Every year I grow, every year I get older, as I watch the ones that I've loved and known for a number of years grow older and then approach. And as I watch those that have walked alongside me die in car accidents or fall to cancer, as I watch the people that I love and cherish, who Jesus loves and cherishes, fall away. It's a journey, you guys, to believe in the hope of Christ. That he, in the end, declares victory. Don't run from your pain. Don't push it aside. Don't prepare your journey to real faith. It's the start of your journey to real hope. It will grow you and take you to places you would have never gone before. Pain is a powerful tool. And I know to end a message here and to tell you that this is the most important thing, I know that's tough. But here's what I look around at the world today. I see a lot of people worried. Some are worried about a disease. Some are worried about our country. Some are worried about our future. Some are worried about even who we are as people. I see a lot of anger, anger for poor choices, anger for poor leadership, anger at missed opportunities, anger for uncertainty and a lack, future knowledge. But most of all, I see a lot of pain. I see a lot of personal pain. Wishing things were different wishing you had more control, wishing, wishing things would just work out differently. And right now, more than ever, I, I see a lot of people falling to the idea that this is purposeless pain, that everything we've gone through over the last six months is just purposeless. We're like, there's just no point to it. It's done nothing. We're not moving forward. And I will tell you, we, we are either in that cycle where pain, when it's purposeless, is worthless, or we are on a journey to greater faith. We are on a journey to understanding the hope of the gospel in a greater way. We're on one or two paths, people. I want to be found on the path that chooses to trust in the hope of the gospel, to see the things that are stripped away and to believe that the pain could be a pathway to deeper understanding of the hope of Christ. So whatever we go through, whatever happens, however painful it gets, 
that we would remember that there's victory at the end and that he cares and he's with us right now. And that that joy is right here. It's free and it's prepaid for you and me. Because in the end, I want to hear Trevor come out of that grave. And I want you to hear that too. God loves you. He is here. He is with you. He has a future and a hope. And your victory is secure. That's John 11. Pray with me.